0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cana Rinse Podcast, Volume 8, Issue 372. We're talking about a vintage classic, it's Paradroid, and it's successes sequels follow-ups and tributes you can play along with the podcast i don't know if you've played some paradroid i know at least one of you has we'll hear from them later but if you want to play some uh perhaps uh, stuff that you can get on more recent formats we've got final fantasy 10 coming up we've got fury we've got uh back to the the retro land of donkey kong the arcade machine but you can play that on a switch and also we're going to cover the donkey kong game boy game on that donkey kong 94 we're then going to go to capcom's dino crisis and after that we're going to play prey but not the recent one we're going to start with 2006 prey should be fun possibly canorince.com is the place to go for the full schedule and links to all our other outlets and bits and bobs and media and forum and shops and so on and so forth you can support us at canorince doing what we do you can get the show a week earlier as well by supporting us. A dollar a month is all we ask. That's 79p.9 euros at the current exchange rate. Patreon.com slash Cana You'll also get an exclusive monthly podcast. And you get your format specials three months early. Uh, so currently that's the Xbox show. And coming up, we're going to be covering the Commodore Amiga, appropriately enough. We also have a PayPal button on the homepage. We do three other podcasts, Sound of Play, Playwright and The Sausage Factory, all worth your time and a subscription, as of course is this one, and a rating, whatever podcast you use, especially if it's Apple, iTunes, uh, RSS-based feeds, all supported, smart speakers, Spotify, wherever you get your media. Uh, We also have some video stuff, Kana Rinse streams on Sundays, live on Twitch and then on YouTube, and HMS Kana Rinse on Thursdays, Sea of, she- sea of thieves shenanigans said tongue twister with chris and darren again live on twitch from 20 hundred uk time and then goes up on youtube follow us on social media facebook instagram and twitter now joining me leon cox in issue 372 are jesse fuchs hello hi uh we also have Mikhail Croder. beep beep boop the, that's that's as far as the impressions go. It's very yeah. hard to do. A-
1: Unfortunately, I'm not Michael Winslow or Russell, the <laughs> Godfather of Noise. So I'll have to keep it at that. It's a good yeah. 1985
0: reference. It's very. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and joining us for the first time ever, special guest uh, Jesse's colleague at the NYU Game Center, but also designer of some games, including Quop. Also contributed some art for recent, current smash hit. Ape out. It's Bennett Foddy. Welcome to Kane and Rince. And thanks for having me. Oh, uh, our pleasure. Uh no doubt we'll get to, you know, refer a little more to your works both at, both at the uh, the NYU Game Center and uh, and as a game creator yourself as we go along. Feel free to crowbar it in wherever <laughs> relevant as we talk about this uh, this classic. So yeah, uh the background is Paradroid is a, a top-down strategic shoot 'em up, although interestingly, I was uh, I was watching a Lemon sixty four video earlier where he described it as a god sim, which mm. was an interesting <laughs> an interesting sort of way of looking at it. But I can sort of see what what he
2: means. I <laughs> I did listen. I looked around for an other podcast where people had talked about Paradroid, I found two, yeah. one of which was in English. And the thing that I I don't remember uh, what podcast it was, but the thing they said that really struck me was uh, calling it a roguelite or a proto roguelite
0: Right. Which. Yep
2: isn't quite accurate, but isn't exactly inaccurate either. And I think that'll be an interesting lens to look at the gameplay through a little.
0: Yeah, yeah, you don't leave any loot behind as such. But uh, but, but other than that, there are similarities, aren't there? Mm. Uh, so yes, Graft Gold made this game, programmed and designed by Andrew Braybrook with a little support from Steve Turner. Uh, it was published by Hewson Consultants, of course, Andrew Hewson's company, but in America, Jesse, you found out it did come out. It had a different cover. Uh, yeah. Just
2: Interactive? There's a, a fairly, a kind of a second tier, but a good second tier uh, publisher called Mindscape at the time. I think they did Deja mm-hmm. Vu. They did, but they had a sub-label, Thunder Mountain, that was like, you oh, know, right. uh, arcade adaptations two years after anyone cared uh, kind of stuff. Very bargain bin. Uh, and yeah, it was very striking to me that I have, uh, never heard of this game when I was in the 80s, right? I never came across it at all, uh, oh, really? even though it's, an, you know, a really uh, enormously revered in the UK. Uh, basically, had no footprint here whatsoever.
0: Yeah, we should say, actually, even among the Kane Rince team, very knowledgeable, hand picked uh, bunch of people, uh, about half and half UK and US, plus the odd Dutchman. Hi, uh, We even have people among the team from the UK in their 30s who don't know this game, which is uh, partly, I guess, why Cana Rince exists. Sometimes to um to do to do a bit of service. I mean, there's plenty of stuff out there. I've got a sh- you know a, a big old document full of links and and whatever. Uh, there's there's a lot of love for this game, but as time goes on, these great relics become history. So uh, we're doing our bit to keep. Uh, keep its name relevant in what small way we can. Uh, so it was released for the Commodore 64. Also, you could play it on the Commodore 128 with no enhancements in 1985. Then uh, we're going to talk about some of the successors and sequels separately, uh, but we'll probably roll our discussion altogether. Uh, but in terms of the original game, it wasn't released again until 2004 when they released uh, a little... Fairly early, uh, all-in-one director TV little doobie, Mikhil, Is this the thing that you've actually been playing the game on? The um, the, the yep. joystick that plugs into your your yeah. Trinitron.
1: Yeah, exactly. The uh, yeah. C sixty-four DTV FPGA thingy, which was uh, <laughs> nice, designed by Jerry Ellsworth uh,
0: and um, Jens uh, Schoenfeld. Yeah, mm. good emulation is it, or is it actually a chipset in there?
1: Yeah, it's a chip. It's basically it's basically yeah. How, how, what's the uh, official name for FPGA field programmable gate uh, array. Ga- gate array, exactly. Mm. Yeah. So it, it it's it's as if you know it's not software emulation but hardware emulation. To be uh be simple about it. So there you mm. go. You, uh, as far as the software side is concerned, you're playing the actual game instead of an emulated version.
0: Authentic. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. There was until relatively recently. And for the last 10 years or so, I can't remember when they took these off the Wii store, which is now closed altogether, of course. But for a while back there in 2008, uh, they released a bunch of Commodore 64 classics on the Wii Virtual Console. Mm. And Paradroid was one of those. Yeah. More on that later. Okay, good. Uh, Reviews-wise, now why are we covering this game? Well, partly I think it was uh, Jesse's pick for the volume as uh, as an irregular regular contributor, uh, but I mean it was uh, it was a, a no-brainer for us to cover at some point anyway. This game was uh, heralded as one of the finest games on the Commodore sixty-four. Uh, readers of retro gamer magazines selected it as the best game ever on the platform. In two thousand and two, a Zap sixty-four tribute publication, uh, paradroid was ranked the best Commodore sixty-four game ever by a community vote. Uh, with the comment, there's something about Paradroid that sets it apart from other Commodore 64 games. When it originally came out, it received 97% in Zap64 in November 1985. With the comment, the classic shoot 'em up and received the coveted gold medal. Uh, and again, it got 97% when it was reissued in 1989 on a budget label as the heavy metal edition. Retro Gamer in the top 10 C64 games in January 2014, just over five years ago, says, ask any C64 owner to name their favourite games and chances are that this superb effort from Andrew Braybrook will almost always make their top five. Taking control of a weak prototype droid, your aim is simply to clear each boarded spaceship, of which there are eight, of its out of control robots, while your droid is woefully underpowered, even dusty bin could have it in a scrap another nineteen eighty five reference. It does retain the unique ability to transfer itself into any available droid, albeit for a limited amount of time. This enables it to take out the ship's more dangerous foes via a charming mini game and adds an interesting play mechanic with its subtle blend of strategy and blasting. Paradroid deserves to be in every c sixty four owner's collection. That also gives you an idea of the gameplay. Kristen Reed gave it a 2007 review on Eurogamer. This was, I guess, even ahead of the Wii Virtual Console release, but he said uh, historians should definitely seek this one out as soon as possible to discover or rediscover a game of rich intelligence and enigmatic grace, 9 out of 10. And it's currently ranked at number 19 on Lemon64's Best 64 Games Ever. Not too bad at all. Uh, the game was influenced by several different computer games and movies. Andrew Braybrook, the author, said in a Retro Gamer interview that the droid swapping idea came from an arcade game, Frontline, where you could enter a tank and had to leave it when it got hit, mm-hmm. uh, which we also saw in Ikari Warriors and uh, and others. Uh, in another Retro Gamer feature, Braybrook also stated that the cover of the Black Sabbath album, Technical Ecstasy, influenced him where two droids interfacing can be observed. <laughs> hmm seek it out uh andrew braybrook famously i say famously famously to those of us a certain age and uh, those of us like uh, bennett and jesse who do this stuff for a living there was a diary of a game in zap 64 this was when games were written mainly by one person and only took about six months to put together maximum um simply this was and also when ndas weren't a thing so we simply got an insight into a number of games that were made during that period Uh, Braybrook said in July 85 the thing you actually play with are robots shown from above there's going to be lots of them if you want to know more about a particular robot what you do is log on to a computer terminal from there you can sift through all the robots and get a large side view pictures and you can select things to get more information I've been working hard on it for about four weeks but I was working on utilities programs to help make the finished game for a couple of weeks before that I always like to do the character set first because it buys time while you're thinking about the rest of it it's probably the easiest thing that you can do it's not really an arcade adventure it leans more towards arcade Gribbleys day out that was Braybrook's previous game i wanted to be a non-violent game all of the zapping and violence that i couldn't get into Gribbleys will be going on in this one last week we designed the game's 20 deck spaceship and i'd like to actually build one just to make sure it all works all the lift shafts tie up and the decks fit together Maybe I'll try using Lego. I don't know, it might work. So far I've got a little robot skating about inside a test deck plan. You can log onto it, log, log onto a console, select an option, make an inquiry on the test robot and get a big picture of it. The picky uses all eight sprites combined, the maximum available on the Commodore 64 at any one time. Despite being a view from above, I intend you won't be able to see anything behind a wall. You'll have to go into a room to actually explore it. Well, there you go more on this but let's hear our own personal histories with the game so we know bennett uh grew up playing european games mainly british games in australia right Uh, so yeah i I, I grew up
3: in australia so yeah we had mostly because of the pal standard we mostly had uh british computers or
0: computers that were popular in england sure uh and so but you are actually a bit young for this game but because your your specialty in terms of your teaching incorporates uh such things um, or did was it just that you played it after it was contemporary? Because you know, you didn't necessarily have all the latest and greatest hardware as a kid.
3: Well, I didn't have a Commodore sixty four as a kid. I had a, I had a Spectrum. Uh, right. So I, I suppose was a little more a uh, little more popular in in uh, Melbourne when I was uh, c- coming up. Yeah, I think uh, there I, were
0: more of them over here as well.
3: I, we definitely did have a Spectrum in, in nineteen eighty five, uh, but I I never heard of this game uh, up until. Years later, I suppose 1990, uh, when the 16-bit version Paradroid 90 was was released for the Commodore Amiga, which I which I did have. So uh, by that stage, it was a Commodore household, and uh, and I I really loved that game. But you know, honestly, I think the uh, the significance of Paradroid has um, it's it's gone up in significance for yes. me since I became a game designer. Right. It's sort of more yeah. interesting from a designer's point of view. So yeah, I, I guess I hearing you talk about the the reception of it at the time, everybody's talking yeah. about it as though it's an arcade shooter. It's like a shoot 'em up game <laughs> yeah is is quite strange from a from a contemporary point of view. I, I suppose mm-hmm. that's how I saw Paradroid ninety at the time, but I wouldn't describe it that way at all now. i suppose I suppose we can yeah get into that more deeply. but yeah at the, at, at the time, uh, you know it was it, it it was I suppose an enjoyable arcade experience, and that was what we were mostly
0: focused on. And uh, Jesse, I see you've been sharing some shots with us on the Kano Rinse Slack. You've got the hardware. at uh, Well,
2: the NYU Game Center has the hardware. I, yes. I just ride the coattails. Uh, but yeah, You guys we have, have access to it, yeah. We have some 80s computers because Bennett and Clara, uh, another professor, taught European games of the 80s uh, a mm. few years back, and hopefully that's going to run again soon uh, and in the fall. And uh, previously I've taught American computer games of the 80s. Uh, and the Commodore is definitely the you know the the big crossover between the two um and that it was an enormously you know popular system in both areas um but yeah this is a game that I I came across probably in 2013 when I found the Zzap 64 uh magazines on uh, archive.org and just you know at that point I don't think I'd even thought of doing the uh 80s class at that point but you know I was getting interested in just absorbing information and finding out about stuff and zap is a really fun magazine to read i never came across it as a kid had never Mm -hmm. really you know i'd vaguely heard of it before Um, it's incredibly entertaining it's surprisingly well written you know for Mm -hmm. young guys at the time um and there is this sense like the fact that they give andrew braybrook this whole like four-part diary series uh, when his previous game is Gribbley's Day Out, which I played some of and is like interesting and pretty good, but like I don't think it would really bowl anybody over. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's kind of that element of inside baseball like this. This would be a little corrupt seeming today, but at the time they were just all pals. And like it's not like they were wrong. Like Paradroid does turn out to be one of the best games released on the Commodore 64. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, anyone who's interested enough to listen to this should definitely go on archive.org and, like, dig up issues of Zap um, mm. and just flip through them. They're just fun. Uh, but, yeah, I basically was just making a list of, uh, what are interesting games I didn't come across. There was a lot of UK stuff. Uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood was another game I discovered at that time I yeah. really like. Crazy. Which It was just an odd game that, yeah, had no American presence whatsoever, uh, despite those songs being you know number one singles here too yeah um but uh yeah i just i didn't play a lot of it i played maybe an hour or two back then and was clear on the fact that it was a super interesting game uh that i'd always meant to go back to but it does have especially because i was kind of half-assing it and did not like go you know i probably found the manual but i wasn't like looking stuff up and really trying to take it seriously. Hmm. Um, I half bounced off it, but, you know, definitely filed it away for future research. Uh, And so, yeah, I was totally delighted that this um, pushed me to actually, like, sit down and, like, you know, play it until I beat the first ship and really felt like I understood the game. Uh, Because the more I played it, the more I liked it.
0: Excellent stuff. And uh, I know that you've done at least one Dreadnought
2: yeah i uh i've made it through the first one twice and then i just die i think because they're just the same thing but harder uh, yes. i just get reckless really fast on the second one because i'm like i kind of you know i've done it uh yeah. but uh but yeah it was incredibly well <laughs> the the dramatic arc of how you do it is weirdly anticlimactic but nonetheless mm. it was incredibly
0: satisfying yeah right Mikhail, uh was this uh, a big deal for you as a kid or not
1: I did play quite a bit on the Commodore 64 as a kid, uh, but it was just, you know, not, uh, my my friend who had one, uh, it was his dad, he, he, you know, he wasn't really deep into the, the whole scene or anything, so it was just like whatever cassettes he had laying around that he could uh, could lo- load up, so we played stuff like Bruce Lee, uh, uh, Ghosts and Goblins, the C64 version, we played yes. A game I don't know. You might have heard of it called psychopics I, I mm. vaguely remember something like that. It's really weird yeah, it's, game. Yeah,
3: it's called Butosan in in uh, Japanese. <laughs> okay. I love that game. It's real really worth checking out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. It's just like yeah. something that popped up from my memory. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, just just really random stuff. So um fast forward to 2006 when I joined. Commodore Gaming, which was a uh, company that basically had uh, the license to uh, do gaming products uh, under the uh, the Chicken Wing logo, the, the Commodore lo- logo. Um, so I, I joined uh, the company as a, as a content manager, uh, just a, s- a small staff, so I was doing a lot of different things. And um, this was around the time before the Nintendo Wii got released. And I started finding out more and more leading up to the release about uh, the Wii's virtual console. Uh, I found out that there were going to be Neo Geo games on it and TurboGrafx-16 or PC Engine games. And I was telling my boss, you know what we should do? We should get uh, Commodore 64 as a platform on there.
0: It was your...
1: Wow. Well, this this sounds sounds like uh, it it sounds a bit ridiculous because I actually he said yeah you know Michiel that's an excellent idea just uh, why don't you send out an email and we'll make it happen. So I sent I didn't have any personal email address of anybody at Nintendo at the time so I just sent to the regular (laughs) info address. Hi, my name is Michiel. I'm a content manager uh, at Commodore Gaming. Yada yada yada. Uh, Never heard anything back from it. Uh, uh but maybe one and a half year later, uh my boss was working behind the scene with a company called Casa Solution on some uh some mobile conversions of older Commodore titles. And they together with them they had a partnership over or they worked with Nintendo's uh as well and CASA also was comprised of a couple of people that were pretty heavy into the the demo scene uh, back in the days mm. and they without my further involvement uh, made it, made it made it happen in the end that uh, the Commodore 64 became for a while at least uh, yeah yeah a platform on the, on the virtual console mm. so i can't really take full credit of it but i at least yeah. like to think that i put the seed <laughs> in my boss's head to to go and pursue it inception like yeah exactly well in the meantime i had one of those c64 dtv thingies and you know how it is if you get a list of games you just scroll through it so i tried out paradroid very briefly and didn't get it at all so i was just flying around through a couple of rooms shooting stuff i didn't really know what was going on but then uh we had to translate the e-manuals uh for uh this for the wii virtual console uh version and they didn't have a Dutch translator. So I said, like, oh, well, I was kind of a jack-of-all-trades within the company anyway. Oh, just send it to me. I'll translate those manuals. Mm-hmm. It was the first time I ever translated from English to Dutch. And then I started translating the e-manual for uh, Paradroid. And I started figuring out, hmm, this There's game is pretty, pretty pretty, deep, actually. Right. What? You can hack other robots? and You can take them over? What is this? So then I went back to the to the game on the C64 thing, uh, on the DTV. And I started uh, playing it quite a bit and became very, uh, yeah, very charmed by it, by just how forward thinking it was.
0: Mm, Wonderful. Yeah. So my history with Paradroid is actually in terms of playing it very brief. Uh, I've only really played it properly recently, but in terms of my attachment to it and my intrigue towards it, it goes back all the way, really. I first started buying, I had an Atari 8-bit computer, which I loved, but there were certain games that it just didn't get. Uh, The C64 sold a lot more in Europe than the Atari 800, so there were a lot of titles programmed in the UK in particular that just didn't come out on the Atari. Uh, Also, they never invented a turbo loader for the Atari, so uh, there was that. Um, But yeah, my friend Simon uh, who came on Sound of Play quite some time ago, uh, had a C64 and he used to rave about various games and Paradroid was one of them I started buying Zap64 just to see some reviews of some of the games I could get and also just to see what was going on elsewhere and I quickly became aware although I missed the issue with Paradroid in it I quickly became aware that this was a game that these guys, Julian Rignall and Gary Penn and Gary Lyddon all raved about and had given this gold medal to uh, so it became something of a fascination and um, to me and I'm sure I did have a quick go or two round at Simons on it without even with him there having uh explaining to me what was what the concept was. I don't think I really got it. Then five years later the Amiga sequel came out and I remember playing a demo of it, which I enjoyed, but um somehow it we'll talk a bit more about it later, but somehow it didn't quite grab my imagination in the same way. The it 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 had it was I mean it's pretty much the same game, but it this just makes made a few changes, and if anything, it's even more brutally difficult. So um, so I never actually got around to owning my own copy, although I'd planned to. So actually, I've only really played it in recent times, um, and yeah, um, I have to hand in my Cane and Rinse card, because I certainly haven't completed it. <laughs> I've, mm-hmm. I've come agonizingly close to finishing uh, the first Dreadnought of eight. Um, I mean, you can argue that actually completing a Dreadnought is kind of beating the game in a traditional sense, because... As Jesse said, it just pretty much, although the Dreadnoughts have new names after that, the the game effectively is just on harder and harder loops like an old arcade game would do. Um, So I wanted to, I spoke to Simon, who's in Japan, lived in Japan for the last 20 years, and asked him to share his memories. So this is what Simon has to say about Paradroid. I was 13 in 1985 when Paradroid was released. Gaming was taking up lots of my free time and chatting about games and playing with my friends on their Spectrums and Ataris, or Atari, I should say, as my mate Leon, you might have heard of him, was the only person I knew who had one of those, defined my teenage years. These days, busy work and family life mean I mainly game vicariously via listening to podcasts such as this, but just hearing the name or a few bursts of sound of some of the games of that time can really send me back. Paradroid is certainly one of those games for me. I was the proud owner of a Commodore 64 and by 1985 I'd been enjoying some of some great games, Mission Impossible, Elite, Beachhead, Aztec Challenge, and Summer Games, to name but a few. The Incredible Drop Zone was released on the C64 that year, following another Atari first, Ballblazer, yet more games that Leon was much better at than me. Maybe we could save the Drop Zone talk for another time. I was a keen reader of Zap 64 and really enjoyed reading The Birth of a Paradroid, making of Diary by Andrew Braybrook Design a new robot. It comes out looking like Kenny Everett with short legs. Ponder, do robots have beards? Amusing entries such as that and others that talked about the design process helped explain some of the trials, tribulations and calculations needed to make a game. However, despite the diary, I couldn't really picture the game that it was going to be. Clearing decks of a ship by taking over patrolling robots via a mini game, it didn't sound anything like any of the games I had in my collection. When I first got the game, pretty soon after release, I recall I immediately enjoyed gliding along the corridors of the ships, taking in the silky smooth scrolling before being blasted to smithereens by a more powerful robot. The minigame involved basic circuit diagrams and logic gates, took a couple of goes to get into, but I was soon overpowering droids of much higher level than me and chasing after the elusive 999 robot, only for it to lose power almost immediately. Boo. Getting better, I finally completed all 20 decks of the first ship. Yes! A congratulatory message and then on to the next freighter. But by that time I'd had my fill. I found the gameplay loop great fun, but I had no real desire to try any of the harder ships. Whenever I played it through, and I played it a lot, I loved being in that moment, surrounded by the atmospheric hums and thrilled by the anticipation of what kind of droid was hiding behind the next wall. The sound design was also superb from the humming and burbling track screen to the plaintive cry of your prototype influence device as it reduced to low power and the power down sound of the deck after it had been cleared. One of the best. Thanks, Simon. So, yeah, one of the things uh, I first want to talk about is actually the presentation of the game. Mikhil's already talked about translating the manual, but one of the things I... Uh, n- I've been playing the game via emulation. I don't have it on the Wii. Uh, couldn't download it again, even if I wanted to. That's all gone. Um, was the the attract mode, uh, which is unusually fully featured and complex in a for a Commodore sixty four game. It's mainly it's mainly text, in albeit in a very cool font. But actually, the game kind of explains a lot about its uh, systems and subsystems without you even having to get the manual out of the box, which is quite unusual for a Commodore 64 game.
3: Uh, it has a it has a manual built in as one of the systems in the game, right? So you you you're, you're yeah. moving around the ship, logging into terminals, and reading what would ordinarily in those days be something that you read in the in the game manual uh, before right. you started playing. Uh, which I think I think that was probably a first, right? I'd never seen that anywhere else.
2: Mm. Yeah. I mean, it, it, and it, it it locks you off from seeing what the higher numbered robots are until, like, you can only see your number and lower in the computer terminal. So it's not, it, I mean, the, yeah, the decks and the maps could have just been printed in a manual because you have full access to those. But yeah, it's, it's weird. And it seems like almost an anti, anti piracy measure. (laughs) Like, I don't know why. Uh, like it's great, but as we'll see when we read, um, Thor Jensen's email, like, I think the only people who played this in the U S were people who bootlegged it, uh, mm. had pirate copies and it's, yeah, it's like, you can figure the game out just by all the stuff, um, that's in there, which is awesome. But it does seem, especially since, you know, text like that actually took up a K or two, like that's, mm. you know, yeah. eating up space.
3: And there's quite a lot of of text and images in those computers. It, you know, it's interesting because they that becomes the reward in the game for playing well. Is that like especially when you're new to it, the the reward for playing well is that you uh, that that you find out more about the systems in the game, about the different droids. And I'm yeah. thinking back to when I had an eight-bit computer. I mean, this was really not the normal way that you that that you learned about a game. Normally. No you 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 had quite a thick manual uh, with quite a lot of you know pictures and and you would spend a lot of time just sort of experiencing the game in your mind in your in your imagination uh, reading the manual while, while you waited an uh, extremely long amount of time for the game to load up so uh, you know this is really a different experience in that sense.
0: Uh, we're kind of naturally segueing into the graphics of the game. I always thought when I first saw these screenshots. That the influence device, the 001 droid, was it had it was a little cute droid with googly eyes. Yeah. But um, and I don't know how intentional that was. I'm not sure if he mentions that in the diary. But um, of course, it doesn't follow through with all the other uh, devices. But actually, one of the things that I think you would naturally you would think that Paradroid ninety when that came along, obviously the extra power resolution of the Amiga allowed him to do actual designs for all the different robots but in some ways until i mean i'm sure you get there i'm sure you get to learn what what they all mean just by by clocking them by sight but the the numbers thing is such it's such a simple shortcut to understanding exactly what you're dealing with at any one time and because the game nominally theoretically takes place you're remote controlling this droid uh, to to try to take over all these uh, these rogue robots on the ship, you can still justify these incredibly primitive eight bit graphics by saying, mm-hmm. "Well, this is just what I'm seeing on the readout of my my little computer that controls yeah. Yeah, controls exactly. my my debris." It's
1: yeah. a representation, and and it's immediately visually very clear. You know, you can immediately recognize, okay, this is a dangerous robot. Uh, and uh, what you said about uh, the influence device, uh, Droid Zero Zero One. What I found especially interesting about the double zeros is uh, his uh, eyelids are half shut. Exactly. So he has a very lethargic, (laughs) laissez-faire kind of uh, (laughs)
0: attitude uh, about him. (laughs) Reminded me of um, uh, Vincent or or Bob, the the black hole droids or something like that, you know, from from that movie, which was only, had only been around a few years at this point. So it would have still been a contemporary reference. We should say the robots have different serial numbers and the, that go from uh zero to nine and uh the higher they go i mean there's variance each way but there is a an element of progression some of them have stronger weapons some of them have stronger shields um and so on and so forth the the higher the number the less time you get to have the robot four which okay. is a, a clever balancing device um but yeah that line of sight thing and, and the ai thing um it does give uh, another sort of weird touch point that i got from this game looking at the uh, the ship deck map, the actual top-down map of the of the deck that you're on rather than the whole side plan view of the ship, uh, actually reminded me of um, sort of things like Space Crusade and, uh, mm. you know, that sort of... Uh, there's almost a survival horror element to this game. Like, mm. there, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't say... It wasn't even sort of Rescue on Fractus level of jumping out of my seat, but there were <laughs> moments when you go into a room... And there'll be yeah. a high number droid, and it's like whoa, you know, it's like that, yeah. that that meme of that kid, the baby that walks into the room and then hi- and then does the the quick turn and uh, hightails it out there. It's um, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: It has think, its, it it definitely has its tense moments. Yeah, I,
0: I
3: think it's designed for that emotion as well. I think the the thing that's the real giveaway is is a very strange aspect of this game that I've never seen before in in action games of the era or even subsequently uh, is that. When you shoot a droid, there's an explosion. If you touch the explo- explosion, it hurts you. So you yeah. you yeah. absolutely can't adva- advance and shoot at the same time. You have to be quite circumspect in how you uh, take on the the other robots.
1: Yeah, that got me a couple of times actually, because I'm used to when something explodes, it's no longer harmful. You know? Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs>
0: yeah. 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 You can it, also um, you can also get chain reactions of kills. Um yeah. And and you don't even always want those because I guess one of the deepest strategies of the game is that. You could, in theory, play this as the influence device, never upgrade. You could even spurn the idea of having your 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 sort of equivalent of Sonic's ring, Sonic's one ring, which is where you ha- if you have one, uh, if you if you've taken over one droid, you've at least got a spare life, effectively. <laughs> so you yeah. can take a hit. But y- you could theoretically work your way through the game and um, play it as a straight shoot 'em up and, and barely upgrade. But uh, of course, you know. Th- sent it's sensible to kind of work your way up through but what you don't necessarily want to do as i found out many times is oh is get overzealous with clearing out all the the easier decks of the lower numbered devices uh droids because you can then leave yourself without anywhere to go mm. Th- that's part of the um the great sort of balance and structure of this um this game this this yeah there's there's this real weird sort of um I, I, I guess the yeah, alchemy of, of symbiosis that, that is why this game is still, why we're making a podcast about it in 2019, like the all these clever little systems and ideas that feed off each other so well and kind of seem to uh, work all in favour of one another. I mean, I'm not saying there aren't quirks and, and things that could be improved, certainly quality of life things, even that uh, we'll talk about re, uh, the, the remixes, reduxes and sequels, but um there's some sort of there's some peculiar collision detection particularly in the first version of the game where i think it's actually that as you said about bennett about the the droids being made up of multiple sprites i think if there's if there's nothing visible uh there's actually no collision so you can actually right. shoot your lasers through the gaps in a sprite and not right. not do them any damage that kind of thing so mm. hit boxes mm. are weird <laughs>
1: I took. Uh, I also noticed today uh, when my eight-year-old kid was playing the game. Oh, right! That wow. uh, he, he was in a room with uh, with a bunch of droids, and they started gunning for him. But instead of uh, hitting him, they started
0: uh, destroying each other. Hmm. Doom style, yeah. Before yeah, Doom yeah. or yeah. Yeah. Berserk, yeah. yes, <laughs> right. And also, they um, they they only uh, if they're a higher level than you. That is, they only fire on you if fired upon. Something like that.
2: Mm. Uh, no, they'll fire you. It, it depends on the, it. Depends, depends on, the on, the robot. on the droid. I think. Depends on yeah. the droid, right?
0: Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, you yeah. can
2: also ram them, right? That would be the ultimate yeah. way to to win the game: is never shoot, never transfer. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> I guess that'd be impossible because you can only ram. You can yes. if you when you're a higher level, yeah, right? Yeah, the, yeah. the lower level one will take damage.
0: Yeah. No, mm. I.
2: Uh, just back to the kind of survival horror like tenseness. I think it's it's mm. really zoomed in, right? That's a big mm. part mm. of it. Is like. When you go through a door, you don't, you know, you have some sense from the deck you're on what's on the other side. Like, that is one thing that makes it less roguelike, is that each floor has a little randomization, but basically a lot of the game is learning the layout of the ship and what kind of robots are where. Um, So you have some sense, and weirdly you can actually see doors open and close. That's like the one thing you sense, uh, which actually does a good job of adding a bit to that, like, survival horror tension. um but you can yeah when you go into a room um you have a good amount of just you know you can you can run into a room in transfer mode right and just sort of like whatever you hit you hit um and that can end up incredibly funny because maybe there's you know something way above you and way below you in the room there have been plenty of times when i was like a seven aiming for an eight and then a one just rammed into me uh and i you know beat it very easily in transfer mode but now i'm a one and i have to run away as fast as i can um and retreat right. and
3: because e- you can't you can't cancel a transfer game once it once it's no. underway right. so yeah yeah there's shame
2: <laughs> and and i was just thinking that yeah i mean the roguelike qualities it's less than its procedural generation or mixing it up in that way but right the enemies can shoot each other it, mm-hmm. I think it's the situations it creates, which is a, a kind of a relatively small pool, but they're like exciting. You know, you uh, you take on something, and then you know you lose uh, the transfer game, and now you're the 001 again, and you have to run away and uh, find your way back to a deck where you can build yourself back up. Um, well, and
3: it's the level. It's the level of care. It's right. You know, that that style of play where you go into every room very ca- cautiously, and you might run away, is a real hallmark of. Of a roguelike, like in, in yeah. uh, at least amongst yeah. modern games, right? So right. whereas normally for an action game, there's never a situation where you have to be like, "Oh wait, actually, uh, this situation is much worse than I thought, and I'm going to back away and try to take on something a bit easier." You you almost never do that in an arcade game.
2: What's fascinating to me about this game, playing it, is it does. I mean, it it feels a little shaggy. You know, it does feel like one guy over five months or so. Um, Mm -hmm. and there's elements that aren't as polished in a way, even in terms of this game design that I like, but he's just sort of a genius of kind of bashing vectors against each other. And it Mm -hmm. creates a puzzle (laughs) of just like on the one hand, on the other hand, sort of stuff like that of like, you're trying to play stealthy. You can't just, uh, you know, blaze your way through it, but you're on a time limit. The more powerful you are, you know, the more you got to worry about that. Like, and it just kind of all works. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's all these, all these, uh, different elements that sort of conspire uh, together to ma- make for this unique mix or cocktail uh, <laughs> yeah <and laughs>
0: yeah it should um it should be said again for people who have never seen this game in motion obviously you can easily do that but um you might look at it and think it's a kind of very uh stiff grid based experience because of the nature of the the art but it's not at all your mm. your robot actually has inertia and motion to it and that we were talking about bashing things it's not like box to box. It actually feels more like a kind of a marble madness kind of situation mm. Uh, mm. with a bit of physics thrown in. Um, so yeah, I, I wouldn't want people to make that assumption that it was yeah like super uh, yeah rigid and and just pure tactically. I also want to mention before we talk more about the transfer game uh, is the audio design. So this was unusual for a Commodore sixty four game or a computer game at this point to not have any music. We were just starting to. Uh, hear the works of uh, people like Rob Hubbard and and Martin Galway making insane uh, feats of audio engineering achievement with uh, no memory and quite a simplistic sound chip. I think the whole of Paradroid actually takes up only something like 30 something kilobytes. Mm. So they probably could have put, they probably had room for a tune in there but instead he went for pure ambience right from the moment it loads. You've got kind of burbling electronica. Um, all the decks have uh, kind of different pulsing atmospheric pulsing noises. You've got fairly simple classic eight-bit sound effects for shooting and blowing things up. But I think the sound to me, and again, I, listeners should acknowledge my advanced age in this. But for me, it sounds the sounds the sound design is still fantastic. Like there's not many sound effects. But what there is is just so perfectly deployed, and especially the "you've cleared the deck" power down noise is just the SID chip just beautifully, unlike any other eight-bit sound chip, can just hit that bass. And uh, even on emulation through a nice pair of headphones, it sounds absolutely superb. I think.
3: I think what's interesting about the sound design is it's you get a sense of we we have we have in in PowerDroid and Paradoid Ninety something that we don't usually get for those old games, which is a sense of what the author would have done. Uh, if he had had more uh, processing power, if it had more right. memory and so on, because he yes. basically makes the exact same game, just better. Uh, and and he's stuck with that sound design more or less, just slightly elaborated, certainly not yeah, with, with music, uh, for the Amiga version. Still this kind of like this humming drone, uh, the sense that the ship is kind of alive and full of systems that have to kind of manage life support and, and space flight and all of that stuff. Uh, it's really, it is really atmospheric. As a result, it has kind of a lonely feeling to it.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, and it's it's something like you would hear in a in a old school sci-fi series on mm-hmm. a board of a spaceship. You know, like the yeah, exactly. the the, the computer white noise kind of uh, kind mm. of thing. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. yeah, still still work
2: for you, Jesse? Oh yeah, no no no, it's uh, very minimal, but the sound effects are great, and just sort of the hums and uh, yeah, that's that's what eventually got me to stop using. Uh, at first I was cheating my way through the game, uh, getting used to it because there's a yeah. time machine feature on virtual 64 where you can like pop back three seconds or whatever. Uh, the catch is if you use it, at least on this game, the sound goes out. Uh, um, ah. and so that was good because, you know, it was a good training mode, but I was incentivized mm. to, you know, get rid of the training wheels eventually.
0: That's interesting. You should say that actually, because, uh, I started playing this and I was deploying, uh, save scumming or save states and, uh, and I, I was i just it more than a lot of the games we've we've played for for kane and Rince, where i've felt the need to do that i just i just wanted to abandon it really quickly because i felt i was missing so much of the excitement and so much of the tension um since then it me, you know it means that i haven't even you know, beaten one dreadnought but i've <laughs> just been playing go after go after go just just yeah like it was 1985 just um putting the joystick down for a second and then just firing it up again. Right. We can do better this time. Either get a higher score or get, you know, get the, get the dreadnought down to fewer droids remaining. It's particularly frustrating when you actually get the 999 <laughs> and, uh, and you've still only got relatively low level grunts to, to finish and you still somehow end up messing up because of oh, yeah. hubris or whatever.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, I mean, that's the other thing that makes it feel almost like a, a Spelunky roguelite in, vibe is like think you're doing really well until you mess up and then you try to recover and then you die
1: yeah
3: there's actually this there's a sense of one of the things that gives it that roguelike sense and also the sense of tension of, of of uh of high stakes is even though a playthrough of it is not necessarily uh, longer than maybe if you're playing Asteroids or if you're playing, I don't know what, like Defender or something. Yeah, yeah. You have a sense of it being longer because you're doing this big task to clean uh, out this right. this ship deck yeah. by deck. And it feels very incremental. And once you've cleared 10, 20 decks, you start to feel like you, you have a lot of progress under your belt, right? Like yes. you've, you've done a lot yeah. and you don't want to lose that. Yeah, uh, which you don't feel in in a normal arcade game structure, I don't think.
0: Yeah, not in mm. quite the same way. I think that's yeah. right. Yeah, especially yeah. on the uh, the Redux version, where it handily actually shows you which decks you've cleared. So you start right. got a visual guide yeah. of uh, <laughs> when you go up and up and down an elevator. You've actually got you know you know where you need to be and what and you've got a visual indicator as to what you've done. the The early game, we should say, is not very forthcoming in terms of information. Mm. And requires a lot of mental mapping and and memorization, both in mm. terms of what's left and where are they left, and and so on.
1: <laughs> yeah, my boy found it very frustrating. He was he managed to stay alive and hack a few droids, uh, so, and he was felt like it was making pro- uh, progress. And then he lost one. Uh, I think he lost energy for uh, for uh, like a, a droid somewhere in the three hundreds. Mm. Then he was back to his uh, influence device, and he tried to hack a another droid and then failed and got destroyed and it was too much for him so yeah no, i don't quite like this game i prefer impossible i prefer impossible mission okay so. well, you got the nice jump
0: but uh, i reckon yeah. it'll be back to paradroid you you only had exit on that uh dtv you've only got the original uh, version haven't you yeah exactly yeah. yeah uh we'll talk about the others um so, yeah, the transfer game needs to be talked about because uh, you probably spend at least, is it? Do you reckon it's 50% of game time in the transfer game mm. or thereabouts? Depends. I would but say but that so.
1: because you can do it very quickly once you become uh, decent. But you and, do it yeah. a lot, let's you
0: say. You do yeah. it a lot, yeah. So how many droids are there on the Dreadnought to start with? Is like 70 or 80 or something mm. like that. It's quite yeah. a high number. Um, and you can, as we've said, you can... Either I mean, even your 001 droids lasers are perfectly effective on some lower level robots. You can blast your way through a few decks if you want, Mm. uh, but it is not necessarily the most intelligent long term strategy. So you will soon want to transfer into at least one robot and then probably work your way up through the rankings. The three oh three robot is ludicrously fast when somebody else when the when the robot's controlling itself doesn't seem that useful when you've got it just (laughs) just as an aside Um, so yeah it's a it switches to a mini game one of the earliest examples I can think of of a hacking sub game obviously we still see them in AAA titles to this day Um, and actually this one I think is still really fun Um, it's very rapid there's a slight issue with uh, not always being able to land on the the exact line there's 12 vertical lines Mm. um you need to you get a certain amount of pulses that you need to shoot down and it's about it's a kind of electronic tug of war where you're trying to uh, light up more of this middle column than than the opponent handily the uh, some of the higher level opponents seem to be deliberately a bit thicker so like some of the more I don't know if it's deliberate, some of the more mechanical um, sort of uh, militaristic droids, although they have the harder weapons and they've got a lot of pulses, they seem to sort of fire them off in quite illogical and stupid ways. And so mm. sometimes I find it's quite it's quite possible to overpower a much higher level droid. But, um, well, you know, he says
3: in the Commodore 64 version, they just they just act randomly in the, in oh, the transfer. Game. Yeah, i of oh. them so, are. But it, it doesn't it speak interestingly, <laughs> to, though, to the power of randomness. That yeah. you're in this situation where the the only choice you can make is very constrained. You can decide when to fire these pulses and where to put them. Yeah. Uh, mm. But a, just completely random behavior has this kind of character of of seeming reasonable in a way because it's yes. so constrained.
0: And the uh, the other key factors about this game is there's a countdown timer, which is uh, it's fairly brief. Uh, it's, it's you know it's quite a quick thing. Um, And as you said, there's uh, the timing of firing your pulses is more important than perhaps you first realize. Mm. So the 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 most recent pulse to be fired into a a node, I'm just making up the terminology here, will be the one that wins out. So if uh, if if two are both going for the same light in the middle of the column, the one that was fired laterally is the one that takes over. Are there exceptions to that based on? Because some of them have like seem to have boosters and whatever else.
2: Yeah, there's the power generators, and those always win.
0: That's right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so I've managed to maybe I, maybe I hadn't been clocking that. Maybe that's why I haven't quite <laughs> managed to finish a, a dreadnought. But yeah. So these these lines uh, they split. Uh, they come together. Yeah. Uh, there's some dead ends, as you say, the power generators, and there's a polarity changer which actually switches a colour. So far, the first part of the game is a quick. Uh, observation game of deciding which side yeah. you want to be on and if you decide correctly that's already half the battle mm. it can be a big advantage yeah. i don't know yeah. how i mean obviously we can't see the numbers written down but there seem to be a huge amount of um procedural variety to how yeah. how these layouts can exist mm. i usually t- tend to try and scan for
1: uh to pick the site where i have the splitter is going oh, yeah. the correct way rather than the reverse splitter. Yes, uh, where you need to do so. That that's one usually what I largely base my decisions on. And if if I see a lot of uh, like uh, um, pulse blockers or like the the little squares, I also avoid that side.
2: Mm. Yeah.
3: There's also uh, yeah one of the things is you sometimes have nodes that that one side can't even reach because of the way that the wires yeah. work, and you, that's yeah. definitely advantageous as well. Uh, but mm. yeah, I think. Uh, Steve Turner, uh, Andrew Braybrook's business partner at the time, and, and I guess suppose uh, programming partner as well, yeah. uh, describes a little bit of, of of how that works in one of those uh, one of the uh, one of those interviews. Um, and it is it's procedural. There's like a series of rules which determine what would be a valid layout. So they, it is random every time, and yeah. sort of in theory, it will be a different transfer game every single time
0: yeah and it's just tense you know again Mm. going up against so you've got this double tension you're say you're scooting around the deck as either either the influence device or a low level droid and you can suddenly come into a room where it looks like there's a a number of much higher level sixes five sixes sevens um you've got the tension of avoiding being blasted just simply blasted very quickly um Mm. we should say you can refill well you can refill some energy but only in certain places and again another really interesting risk reward balance thing it's at the expense of your score (laughs) this is a game that actually (laughs) you know like games mostly used to do it keeps your score and there's you know you can enter your name and um and whatever else so um and then you've got the tension of once you get if you actually manage to uh hold down the button and and get up to the the enemy then there's the fact that yeah if you're going for something much higher than you it is possible to beat them especially if you give yourself the advantage but they're going to have like two or three times as many of these pulses and opportunities to, to take over. So it can be, the game can end very fast in Paradroid, uh, either, either in the the transfer game or on the deck. I think it's fair to say. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, you can, you can make some big leaps up. You can take some risks. I absolutely adore the transfer game. It's one of the best things I've played in any 80s game, really just because there's a board gamey aspect to it where yeah, I mean it's an action thing. It has to go really fast, and probably the least satisfying part is that the controls are a little fiddly, and sometimes you you don't mm. shoot where you want to. shoot! Yeah, um, But the but that read segment, you know, that five seconds where you're looking at both sides, and there's like five or six different factors you might be looking at because, like, maybe this person, you know, this side can't connect to this node, but that node is already their color, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's fantastic. And he came up with it yeah. in like a day. Like it was just yeah. first thought, best thought and
3: right. basically well, last, had this Last system. thought, best thought, I guess. Cause right. I meaning yeah. if you read the, the diary we're talking about from Zap 64, he's yep. just about finished the game and he still doesn't have anything in there for that transferring. Yeah. And then he's like, Oh, you know what would be good? <laughs> this, this amazing little <laughs> micro game. Yeah.
0: So often yeah. the way in the history of <laughs> video game design development. Well, let's hear from him Tuesday, May the 21st, 1985. An average morning's contemplation until zap, whiz, pow, an idea for a game within the main one. Fighting for control of a new robot. Instead of just a graphical sequence showing the takeover of a new robot, why not have to play for it? You against the robot's brain. Base it on logic circuits and use some existing routines. A whole new game segment in a small space. The next day, Wednesday May 22nd. Get stuck into the new transfer game. Get screens set up, working almost perfectly. Game is beautifully simple, but under pressure it has great possibilities. Now I've got to convince it not to give impossible setup situations, since it is relying on a stream of random numbers, courtesy of Sid, the sound chip. Thursday, May 23rd. Finalise the screen setup for the transfer sequence. Work out which arrangements of play elements are possible. Devise rules to ensure that they are never selected. Discover rules are very simple, which makes life easier. Feel pleased work out how to run the game itself and begin coding when Andrew Hewson, uh, the owner of the studio, drops in to spy on us. I proudly demonstrate the new creation. What on earth is it, he says? Not one of his most helpful, constructive, or illuminating (laughs) comments. I rage inwardly. The relationship between producer and developer right there in 1985. (laughs) (laughs) One of the other things I wanted to say was uh, about the, the the text in the ZAP review. They used to uh, review uh, they used to uh, mark on seven categories presentation 100% <laughs> they gave it which uh, I remember reading some letters after saying you can't give anything 100% but they did um, but also uh, value for money um, which they they later actually uh, excised that one just basically saying well you, you can tell if it's value for money by the overall score which is fair enough but at this point they still had that value for money 98% it's been worth the wait and it's definitely worth the money um now i haven't done the calculation for inflation but i believe this was uh, probably 10 pounds um which is probably about 25 pounds now and worth the wait uh it was <laughs> yeah it was basically 6 months from announcement to completion and in the shops mm. so yeah uh yeah And also, while we're we're also waggling old sticks, uh, sticks like old men, I should say, at uh, the youngsters listening to this show. And I hope there are some. Um, This game's also entirely, all those things we've talked about, the transfer game, the shooting, the accessing the uh, computer, the opening the doors, blah, 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 blah. 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 It's all on one button. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it works yeah. perfectly. Um, I wouldn't say perfectly. Well, yeah, no, no. Almost perfectly.
3: <laughs> actually, I mean, you know, as somebody who came up on one-button games uh, yeah, well yeah. into my teens on the Amiga, yeah. uh, this is one of those designs that could really benefit from a second-button top mode.
0: I'll, I'll grant you that, actually. I was perhaps being hyperbolic. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But it's but it, nonetheless <laughs> impressive. But, uh, but yes, a second button for hacking, uh, one for hacking, one for shooting, would, mm. have, would have helped certain scenarios. I... you... You have to hold the button down to activate the hack basically. right and which
1: again is a bit of uh game balance there because transferring can be kind of overpowered uh as uh, you know once you become good at the, the transfer game but you basically make yourself vulnerable when mm. you uh when you uh hold the uh transfer button mm. or the, the fire button
2: yeah we were mentioning i mean i did find it irksome but when we were talking earlier about survival horror it actually does have a bit of that resident evil like mm. if you want to do this you have to be willing to sit in one place for two seconds
0: or like yeah. a second
2: and a half and mm. yeah. not move to be able to you know use this otherwise you fire. we should yeah we should right.
0: say because basically you can either fire uh yeah you can basically you can fire by pointing your stick and pressing the fire button uh and it has to uh yeah, it has to acknowledge that you want to do the the transfer by holding the button down while while stationary for a couple right. of seconds. Yeah, and
3: I, I think, I think that Andrew yeah. Braybrook obviously wanted that to be a uh, like a moment of vulnerability because in the Amiga version, the mm. your your influence droid is actually represented as having like an external retractable shield. Yeah, uh, you might not have noticed, but it's it's yeah. So it it when you go into transfer mode, your shield goes down and you become mm-hmm. incredibly vulnerable to being shot uh but like after you leave a droid or if they shoot if you're trying to shoot with your weapon then the shields go up. Uh so yeah it is really like it's meant to be a gamble i suppose to try to take over
0: another droid. So there are 23 i think robots mm. uh including the influence device. Uh, there's only uh there's like one in the in the one uh, two in the one series, three in the two series and so on. Um yeah. two or three in each number category. So i again before i'd actually done my Research on this game, I'd always assumed that they were like could be up, you know, up to 999 droids. It's ridiculous, of course, because yeah, there's a picture, but that's the
1: that's what the, the well. triple digits lead you to believe.
0: Actually. Yes, <laughs> yeah, but it makes it does make good sense. They but yes, they could have actually had they could have actually had two numbers each, couldn't they? And it mm. still would have worked. Uh, there's some neat ones in there. Um, this was quite funny pictures and designs. One of them is uh, is basically a Dalek. Um, and uh yeah some of them have single lasers some of them have twin lasers some of the lasers are fatter than others and basically have bigger hit hit areas uh some can some some robots can fast shooter than others um and the battle droid the 711 has a flash disruptor which is kind of uh, is that unique i think it's the only one that has that but but there's also one droid the 420 maintenance droid which is immune to that so <laughs> Again, just these uh, all these really quite subtle little touches, which uh, Mm. which seem like just you know mere trink trifling trinkets of details, but actually can seriously stymie your run. Mm. And of course, also becoming a a battle droid, a seven series or even an eight series, uh, the time that you have those is considerably lower. Mm. Uh, There's certainly the temptation I've found to hang around as a as a five or six series, a crew droid or a sentinel for for lengthy periods and as a kind of jack of all trades mm. uh, i don't know what 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 are your best strategies folks
2: um i i've been partial to the the 7-eleven rampage strategy um okay. which you know you, you sort of work your way up you <laughs> grab a 7- many
0: stoners have also uh, <laughs> favored that strategy
2: <laughs> and yeah you just run around pressing the button wildly and blow up everything you can and then the 821 is actually immune to the flash as well um right. so then maybe hop over into an 821 continue a rampage and then right you know try to uh time it so that i can find like a five or a six um that i can sort of chill in and then you know but but that is the weird dramatic arc of the game is like it's the odd, first it? third yeah. of the robots you clear out hopefully are most of the most powerful ones mm. um mm. like that's the hard part and then and then the mop up is under a time mm. limit so it's tense but um mm. it's an odd yeah an odd arc
0: asymmetrical uh, the- and uneven yeah
3: the other strategy you can go for to try to uh, defray some of that sense of of stress over being uh, over, over losing all that progress is to go straight from the beginning of the game for a top level robot for a nine nine nine. Yeah. Uh Even though you can't keep it for very long, uh, by by transferring into it, you get rid of it, uh, yeah. and you do as much damage with it as you as you possibly can. You probably only have a ten percent chance of beating it in the transfer game, but it's not impossible. It Really, just depends no. on the random roll mm. of the board. So yeah. I used I used to always do that. It's like I would start by trying to do the most difficult thing in the in the ship, uh, yeah. and if, if if that worked out, I knew I was on a good run, and if not, you just try again.
1: I once tried to hack a um, droid that was way above my level uh, with the the influence de- device, and I think I've got like. Ten or fifteen deadlocks before I was finally able <laughs> yeah. to, to to beat it. <laughs> so this is what happens right. when you when you when you basically Time. reach a draw or stalemate mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. in the in the transfer game. You get a deadlock,
2: which is actually sounds tedious but is super tense because the 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 penalty for losing like that's the interesting thing about the transfer game in the context of the whole game to me is that it's actually relatively easy right that you get to pick the side uh the computer plays randomly and you can kind of work your way around that um but the penalty for losing is immense um Mm, and so yeah when you get those deadlocks
0: it is just like
1: that's a near miss Uh yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) And after a deadlock, the board's reset as well. Mm-hmm.
0: One of the things uh, that I keep doing, I mean, I do it with a lot of games. I'm not a games designer, but obviously I play a lot of games and I care about them a lot, is to sort of think about, especially when we do an older game, like if they if they made it today or if, if, they, if they made a reboot, remaster, whatever, spiritual successor, things that they might do. One of the things that struck me about the 999 was actually that if you could get that under control early, there might be some... Kind of element of actually i don't know reprogramming the ship systems in some way as well as the individual robots themselves mm. um setting up traps or or shutting down things remotely or sh- turning things on remotely or something i don't know if that that might be an interesting wrinkle but mm. um get to work somebody <laughs> um definitely uh, the longer i played this the more i thought that this this game could totally still rock and roll a, a, yeah. a indie release I was exactly I was thinking the same thoughts exactly. I mean, uh,
1: last year um Uridium got a spiritual sequel in uh, mm-hmm. Hyper Sentinel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's it's about time for a Paradroid to get a um get a spiritual sequel because there's a lot here that feels feels like this could be fleshed out further and you know well, we, we don't
3: you know, I feel like this core mechanic is actually used more often than we than we might think uh mm. in commercial titles usually as one mechanic among many but rather than as the kind of core mechanic um, Yeah. but i mean we could talk about some of the uh some of the games that have have borrowed from this because near there automata
0: was the one that we mentioned recently right um where the character 9s actually takes over robots and uses them to attack and take over other robots <laughs> right, which <yeah>. uh, <laughs> i don't know whether uh yoko taro is familiar with paradroid possibly mm. not i mean yeah. Any yeah. others? What What others spring to mind?
3: Well, there's a it's it's, it's a core mechanic in uh, Dishonored, I suppose. It's to, to to Jesse's yeah. point about a good vampire game, it's kind of a vampire game in a way, uh, mm-hmm. where you can possess NPCs and move them around, and it's used uh, quite differently. in, in a fully, uh, you, know, you couldn't make an immersive sim in the in the 1980s, but yeah. it works really really well in an immersive sim because you've got all of these little clockwork characters moving around doing their jobs. And you, you give the player the ability to do the jobs that those clockwork characters are doing. So, you know, here is a guard who's allowed to enter the palace. Well, if I become the guard, then I'm able to em- enter the palace. Uh, and um, and headman Ma- Head comes to mind. Hitman works this way. And uh, earlier than that, I suppose a game that we can absolutely guarantee uh, is by a designer who played Iridium is uh, Messiah from 2000, oh. the shiny entertainment game. Right,
0: yeah. Okay. So in
3: Messiah you're for people who haven't played it because I don't think it's that well known actually no, but it did not. have a lot of hype at the it time because Shiny yeah. was doing very well um so Messiah is a game where you're a cherub or an angel uh that is able to to possess different people in a kind of a cyberpunk uh city it's a very very strange game uh but yeah the <laughs> the, the the designer of that uh David Perry of of Shiny Entertainment uh, was a, He was uh, cut his teeth on the ZX Spectrum. So he would definitely have been aware of these, uh, yes. of yeah. these games. And in that game, it's it, it's used both ways. So it's, it's used in combat very much the same as it is in Paradroid, which is to say you can harm people by transferring into them or transfer into them so that you can use their weapons uh, and you can kind of lure them into attacking each other and so on. So that's really the kind of core combat mechanic. But mm-hmm. it's also used in that Dishonored way uh, where... There are certain characters who are who are allowed to go through through a certain door or do a certain action or access a computer terminal. Uh, so you're, yeah. you're you're trading uh, their different capacities. So it's used in that immersive sim way as well. Uh, I think yeah. that's the closest sort of relatively yeah. modern analog of of uh, of Paradroid.
1: And Leon started off by mentioning survival horror, and now you're saying immersive sim. Mm-hmm. So you could definitely see. Some uh paradroid DNA in the likes of System Shock and uh later Bioshock as well. Oh, of course, yeah. there's the, mm-hmm. the hacking mini games, and uh, and of course, uh, systems, System Shock Two's atmosphere is not entirely dissimilar mm-hmm. from uh, for paradroids if you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: I'm even thinking about Driver San Francisco now, where, where you, <laughs> you uh fly from head to head, uh, driving different people's cars. It's not so. Not so far away.
2: (laughs) The one that it made me uh, think of, and in fact, probably is one of the reasons I played it originally, uh, is I always enjoyed Space Station Silicon Valley, uh, which is a Nintendo sixty four game where you're like uh, basically a microchip, I think, Um, and you're the
0: GTA people.
2: Yeah, you're you're hopping from robot animal to robot animal, uh, and they each have to, and it's kind of a action puzzle game, right? You're you're trying to solve each level, different, you know, the sheep can float. So that'll get you over here and then you can hop into the tiger or whatever. Um, but yeah, a, a similar, but more bespoke puzzles, less procedural. Like Bubba
0: is You meets Paradroid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, before either of, the, uh, before that one, before Bubba is You. Um, yeah. that Well, Space Station, Silicon Valley is another one that's on our massive long list of games to cover someday. Um, yeah. It doesn't get a lot of, uh, a lot of love that one. <laughs> uh So yes. Um, I mean, I'm sure there are people out there who have gone all the way through i saw somebody at least bemoaning the fact that you don't get an in there's no you know it was very common and it was actually a running joke between simon and i uh who we heard from earlier about how often games of, of this era didn't really even give you any congratulations for finishing a game or if they did it would just be like white text on a black screen saying well done um but this game uh, if you get through the Paradroid Freighter, you go on to Metahawk and Hustromo and Graft Gold and Blabgorius Gorius the Fourth and Red Barchetta and Retta Beast and then there's one more called It's Not Hard Enough. Uh, <laughs> so uh and I believe if, even if you get to the end of that one, yeah, you don't get any kind of uh congratulations for your efforts, uh, but obviously some deep self-satisfaction. Um and I'm, I'm sure there are people out there. I don't think it's a game that I've seen one CC'd or speed run too much, but there might be an enthusiast scene for it. But I was pleased to see most of the videos I did look up on YouTube are mainly people dying and going, this game's great, but it's really hard. Uh, <laughs> takes a bit of learning. So, yes, uh, the following year, uh, Andrew Braybrook had honed his coding uh, and a double pack was released with uh, an improved version of both uridium and paradroid rather than getting up in arms as i suspect social media would these days and going yeah but i paid for the i paid for it a year ago why can't i have this new one for free everyone was seemingly <laughs> more like um, wow we, there's better versions of these games <laughs> uh, let's buy them again uh, that voice leon that voice that, that's how <laughs> that, that is that is my internet whiner's voice uh, yeah. <laughs> they do all sound like that in my head um what was i saying yeah um <laughs> Sorry. that's all right um
2: well it was faster i mean it was it was yes. smoother he cleaned up the code to some extent uh yes basically the exact same game i kind of you know i've played both and i ended up preferring mm. the speed of the original uh yeah maybe that survival horror aspect in a way right
0: Yes, I've, I've definitely one or two people uh, concur. I suppose if you'd played an absolute ton of the original and you were really expert at it, then maybe a sort of slightly soup, uh, souped-up version would be would be nice. Um, it's also slightly sc- uh, the scrolling is uh, slightly smoother and things like that. So uh, I don't know if it actually runs at a higher frame rate or whether it's just simply faster machine code. Uh, interestingly, on the box it says new ultra smooth mega fast version on the tape it says fast paradroid and officially it's known as paradroid competition edition i don't know if there mm. was if it's like one of those nintendo competition carts where there was actually a competition around it but not as far as i know um perhaps it was the, perhaps there was a contest in a magazine or something uh yes scroll code enhancements according to braybrook and but it also it did add one thing that i think we can all well maybe we don't i think i think was an improvement is the loader rather than just a, a nothing screen you've now got this uh three glowing eyed robots staring out at you from behind a computer desk and uh with kind of lightning static sparks going off they're occasionally illuminated i thought it was rather good
1: yeah uh, it, it's it's a it's a very nice screen but uh yeah on my hardware i uh, there's no loading screen anyway
0: because nope. it boots up instantly you can just <laughs> look it up on youtube uh yeah or emulate it. Then uh, the following year, as we've already mentioned, Heavy Metal power droid sometimes just called Metal power droid, uh which was on Houston's Racket label, two ninety nine games. Oh, actually, no. It came, did. It come out on its own first, and was then re released in nineteen eighty nine. Don't think it was ever full price. Um, but yes, Heavy Metal power droid effectively took some of the metallic style graphics from uh, Morpheus and sort of. Involved them in the the surrounds of the game. Uh, does anyone think this works better or, or aesthetically or or worse?
2: Um, it was a little clearer. Some of the some of the levels in the original Paradroid are like your you know white ships on yellow backgrounds makes Bit it garish, a little hard to yeah. read. Um, yeah. I yeah I played a little of it. It was sped up in the same way that competition edition was. So I yes eventually put it down. But I thought it looks right. it looked fine.
0: Yeah, I've been cycling through the various versions myself. Uh, Thanks to Jesse, we have uh, communication from K-Thor Jensen. Does he prefer Jensen or Jensen? Uh, I think Jensen. Jensen, Uh, who says the Commodore 64 was a weird thing in the US. It was very clear that it was a machine for games as the hardware had a cartridge slot for plug-and-play entertainment without even touching the keyboard, but it never really found the niche that it did in the UK or Australia. That said, many major retailers sold C64 games, including Toys R Us. I got my Commodore when I was five years old and used it consistently through junior high until the power supply burned out and I couldn't find any place to get a replacement. While I did get a number of games through retail sources, the majority of my software came on bootleg double-sided discs a friend of mine would order from some mysterious contact. You'd pay a couple of bucks and get a sleeve of five and a quarter inch floppies with dot matrix labels. Pretty sure that Paradroid was on one of them. That game stands out for me because it's a really great example of the best of the C64 design philosophy. It wasn't hardware designed to do a lot of heavy lifting graphically with pretty strict sprite and palette limits but the mostly British designers and coders making software for it had big ambitions and the machine had some seriously wild and impressive things done on it. I still see tech demos that look amazing. The Paradroid is ugly, unforgiving and repetitive but it's also incredibly fully realized a self-contained fictional space where your status in the food chain is always painfully clear and your options are right in front of you, limited only by your ability to execute them. It's not an easy game, and I don't think I ever cleared the ship as a kid, but it's one of the C64 titles that's indelibly etched in my memories of the system. There you go, the ship. Yeah, the ship. There is <laughs> <You> know, only <laughs> one ship.
1: That,
3: that reference to the food chain makes me, makes me uh, reflect. There is actually uh one game i can think of which which precedes Paratroid in that way which is mm-hmm. on the television there's oh, an American yes. game called shark shark <laughs>
2: uh
3: where you start as a very very small guppy fish huh. and you're only mm. allowed to eat fish of equivalent size or smaller right and then as you mm. as you go and you eat more and you gra- gradually get bigger and bigger until you're able to eat the sh- the the eponymous uh, yeah. shark uh yeah so th- there's a little bit of of, of prior art i suppose <laughs> and then
0: that came again in uh flow mm-hmm. that, yes that game absolutely company. yeah and mm-hmm.
3: osmos as well so yeah there's a long history of that as well that where you are in the food chain being sort of visually apparent
0: right so of interest i think uh well it's definitely of interest to me and therefore hopefully our listeners uh there was a what was going to be a straight conversion, I believe, but ended up as something quite different. Steve Turner made Quasitron or Quasatron. I've never I always called it Quasitron, but I've heard Quasatron mm. makes sense. Uh, came out on the ZX Spectrum in nineteen eighty six. Uh it's so it's got sort of isometric uh view, as many popular Spectrum and uh, other eight bit Amstrad games of the era did. Houston published it, of course. Uh, and it was based on cities rather than spacecraft, but it has the almost identical, if not identical, uh, transfer game. Mm.
1: Yeah, and, and elevated terrains as well. Mm. Yes. it's interesting. Yeah.
0: Yeah, there was a game um, that Andrew Braybrook had something to do with in the late Amiga life called Virocop, mm. which is more of a shooter, but, um, but also has elements of both Paradroid and Quasitron or Quasitron. Clipper from the forum says it was Quasartron on the Specky. Me and my friend played that so much. One of our favourites. The little mini game where you were trying to hijack the other robots was great. Games nowadays will often have things like that when you're hacking a computer or something. But I don't think they've bettered it. I don't really have anything else to say other than I remember it being difficult. More than
1: 30 years, and nobody has ever betted it. So, Quasitron is- For shame, for shame.
3: (laughs) Quasitron is even more like a roguelike, right? Because instead of taking over the droid, you strip it for parts. Uh, Mm. And so, once you you, you defeat the droid, and you're allowed to take optionally its uh, armor, its energy source, its gun, um, its chassis, Uh, but- uh, you can fail as well to pick them up, so sometimes you'll try to strip apart and it gets destroyed, um, which really I think actually gets pretty close to being more like a roguelike. Uh, and yeah. it, I, I suppose the other main difference is because it's in this outside isometric city with with elevation, uh, the robots are able to bump you off cliffs, which which is sort of uh, makes them a little more diverse than the ones. That's more marble
0: in- madness again. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yes, yeah. So yeah, I think it's era.
3: definitely. At least visually, visually it looks a lot like Spindizzy or something like that. So there's that yes, Marble Madness for sure. lineage for sure. Yeah.
2: Um, with the transfer game, the more you beat the robot by, the better a chance you have of grabbing a piece of its equipment, um, which is a really interesting innovation. On that, I that this is the one I played. I guess the second most of after Paragroid. I didn't get very far. It's I feel like it's definitely harder. Um, and it is difficult to keep track of what equipment you have right now. And like, it doesn't, it's not very helpful in terms of what's better than what, although you can kind of take guesses based on the robots you beat. Um, mm. but it's definitely if, if, you know, someone is exploring this game design space, it's the one uh, of the sequels I would most recommend because it did a lot of interesting things, mm. um, with that kind of basic setup. Um, and also it feels because you can pick, uh, cursor keys as an option, like the transfer game actually feels better. Like it, you, you're uh-huh. much less likely to uh, pick the wrong thing by accident. And there's a, a rising tone uh, throughout the transfer game. So you don't have to like flick your eyes to the number, you know, the timer. You just, mm. you can hear when the thing's about to end. So mm, there's right. definitely some things about it that are in some ways improvements. Um, yeah. Overall, yeah. Um, yeah, the the isometric nature and the physics-y, spin-dizzy part of it, didn't do a hell of a lot for me, so. But it's 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 a really interesting uh, evolution of these ideas.
3: I have found that uh, American designers are uh, a sort of uh, averse to isometric games in a way that European designers are not. <laughs> uh, I think just it's a it's a it's a matter of uh, exposure and uh, and maybe Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> um, but for me, uh, yeah, it, it it definitely seems. I I hadn't played uh, Quasitron a lot until just preparing for this uh, podcast, but it it seems quite enjoyable to me. I I would say Mm. there's definitely some interesting stuff to be had from it. And some of those improvements were also rolled into Paratroid 90 by Braybrook. It's a very interesting relationship that the two of them had. I mean, if I said to you, like, I've written this game uh, for our company, uh, could could you please port it over to a different system? And you're like, Mm. absolutely, I'll port it over. and, And then you hand over this thing that's almost in a completely different style and genre. It's like, yeah. well, here's the port. It's got a different name. Uh, I kept some bits of it. I didn't like the rest, so I changed everything. <laughs> yeah. uh, it would be a source of a fight, I think, between most collaborators. Yeah. But yeah, seems like Th- it was
0: Things fine. were different then. And I suppose also <laughs> there was the, ju- I mean, Steve Turner was a much, much more adept spectrum coder and he mm-hmm. probably would. But actually I, I don't think there's anything in the the C64 version that, couldn't have worked on the spectrum you know I'm not uh, sure I'm, actually,
3: I'm not sure about that so the spectrum has does worse with sprites and scrolling true uh, so true. it doesn't have that Might But have the spectrum screen. does yeah. a lot better with uh, isometric games because of uh, just the way that it's able to kind of draw uh, yeah. faster clock speed uh, significantly yeah. so it, you don't see things like night lore and alienate on the Commodore 64 I think for that technical mainly technical reason.
0: Yeah, they managed uh, uh, They managed Head Over Heels um, and Batman. Yes, they But did. They, they, they ran slower, um, and, they, and they, certainly...
3: And, and they came quite late in the piece as yes. well. So they, they yeah. were not... Like, when everybody was scrambling to make Nightlaw, uh, it took quite a while before somebody got something like Definitely. that on the Commodore 64. Yeah,
0: famously, a lot of the ultimate ports to C64 were very badly handled mm. and received, yeah. Mm, mm. Uh, Ranarama. Now, this surprised me. So I remember, I think this got a Zap cover. Uh, in 1987, I think the C64 port came somewhat later. I wasn't really familiar with the fact that it was already a, a Spectrum game. I hadn't realised there was much of a connection here. I'd always ignorantly associated Ranarama with the Gauntlet um sort of craze, and I'm, I'm sure there's something in that. But I remember when it came to Zap, they were like, "Here's another Druid slash Gauntlet kind of you know dandy dungeons kind of game." I didn't really realise there was a strong connection with Paradroid. But Jesse, you're here to enlighten us.
2: Well, there's, I mean, it has a mini game and it's not a very good one. <laughs> Basically, it seems to be the main connection. And I guess the designers, um, yeah, I mean, after I played it, it was, it's interesting in its own way. It is a fairly complicated action RPG. There's a lot of spells and leveling up and kind of strategic stuff that uh, I kind of bounced off of, but definitely is, you know, seems well thought through. Um, but yeah, no, it, it, it. It was mentioned a few times as being in this uh, family, um, but the connection's pretty slim. And, yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting one to look at, but maybe more from the, like, Gauntlet as an action RPG side than the Paragroid right. side.
0: But we did get uh, pretty much a straight follow-up to Quasitron, Magnatron. Uh, now, I know even less about this one. All I remember is the name, really, that it existed.
2: Yeah, I played a little of this one. The problem again is no one can like Andrew Braybrook had a genius moment, thought of the best mini game in the world and no one's mm-hmm. bothered to even try to compete. Like Magnetron's actually pretty interesting in that it is quasitron with there's reactors and you have to like set the levels of them and there's more doodads going on. So as a sequel in that way it's fine. Um it has a totally different mini game that's just not interesting. It's kind of like a sliding the little 15 block game um, that you just have to do right. really fast. And the and it just doesn't have a generative quality to it, where, you know, in Paradroid, like the same layout could feel pretty different depending on um how much better the robot you're trying to get to is because of the number of transfers you each have. Like again, this board gaming aspect of like there's just these vectors bouncing off each other that make a wide variety of situations. And the Magnetron one is like just very one note. And and that's why I bounced off it. Although otherwise, yeah, it seems like a reasonable sequel to Quasitron.
0: And surely there's been at least one game since then also called Magnetron. It seems, yeah, there, I, seems impossible. There was a, a
2: Broderbund game that I, I've been searching for the manual for this one. All right. And uh, <laughs> I found a, a false lead. It was very, I read like the first 15 pages of it and just gradually was realizing, like, where's the transfer? I don't understand. Yeah, yeah. Never made it over here.
0: So maybe we can judge the true legacy of a video game rather than by its official sequels, by its uh, fan remakes and, and uh, enhanced conversions. I think the first one I want to talk about is one that I have actually spent some time with, and I have mixed feelings about, uh, because I think it definitely does... Uh, tweak some things in a in a way which is uh, pleasurable to a uh, a now modern gamer um, but also keeps well i mean it looks identical you know it is effectively the core game but paradroid redux is a re-implementation of the original code fixing bugs and adding features uh, so but it's by uh, tnt and or beyond force a brushed up version of the classic uh, hardly shaking or slowing down when there's a lot going on. Uh, additional statistics option at the consoles. Intelligent droids that, depending on the rank difference, react differently to the player and even seek you out. Uh, radar option when you occupy a high-level droid and stand still when there's no enemy in the room or field of vision. A lamp on the droid will appear that shows the direction and degree of danger of the next droid. Huh. It also has a storable high score list. And it tells you the amount of robots there's still to go, and that aforementioned uh, deck unlighting on the map feature. Uh, How do we feel about this? Pure, impure, a solid addition to the lineup, or should it be ignored?
2: Um, I played a fair amount of it. I would say I'm torn. I mean, I like them both, Um, and I think the the way you know, there's just some quality of life improvements that are very straightforward of you know fixing bugs. it adds a couple of other gameplay elements like the bridge you can't get across the bridge that door is locked unless you are a 600 um, um yeah. robot or higher mm. which is an interesting in you know it, it works i think um if you damage droids you lower their transfers um yeah. so you can but then they're damaged um it's a
0: contentious one that
2: yeah and um there's yeah there's a few other I mean one thing that was really nice is that in the original some of the decks are split between two sections and they don't power off uh, until you've dealt with both sections and yes. that makes you basically have to do the little section first because otherwise you're going to be in the big section like looking around for two minutes trying to find that last droid um, mm-hmm. and so separating that I mean that's the thing is it's a combination of really straightforward improvements that only be against if from a academic or you know i want to play the yeah. original thing point of view and then some gameplay choices that i think are very plausible um and sort of better in depending on your angle but i can see being contentious
0: it also has a, a little visual uh the only real visual tweak that i could clock was the there's a little star field so if you're at the edge of the ship uh when you're scrolling as you're scrolling around you can actually see kind of outside which right. which is nice in one way it adds a little atmosphere but also it takes away from the idea that you're just kind of viewing the whole thing remotely on some kind of low-tech device because now you can see space so yeah <laughs> <laughs> funny little things um yeah so that would completely kill the the whole 600 droid thing that would almost kill the Bennett, your strategy of uh, going yeah. straight to nine 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 you'd have to you'd have to take a detour, right? Um, otherwise,
3: you're just going to have to do the same thing to get back across the yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, it doesn't make sense. Hmm. So these others I haven't uh, played, um, but they exist or existed. I don't know how many of them are still downloadable. I expect many of them have been abandoned by their authors now. There was Paradroid for Windows and Linux. Current version, <laughs> 1.3, March 2004, <laughs> which garnered favourable re- uh, reviews at Home of the Underdogs, which is a name blast from the past. Uh, Free Droid Classic, also Windows, Linux, Mac OS X, and Sharp Zorus. Current version was 1.0.2, 2004. What happened in 2004 that <laughs> people were in uh, obsessed with making Paradroid remakes? The Uh Yeah, and then abandoning them. Project Paradroid for Windows, version 2, uh, 2006. And Free Droid RPG is a Diablo-style role-playing video game based on Free Droid Classic, inheriting only the main theme of fighting hostile robots, the takeover game, and the robot models. Hmm. Uh, there's more called That Droid Game, Droids, and there was Paradroid for iPhone which uh, is also no longer in existence. I assume it was a fairly straight. That was one of um, Elite Systems uh, when they were releasing old games for contemporary systems. They also released um, Jet Set William Manic Miner for Xbox Live Indie Games, weirdly. Um, That was a strange time. So a little more uh, as we rush towards the conclusion about Paradroid 90. Also by Andrew Braybrook. Additional ARM coding from Andrew Stanworth with graphics now. Actually, some graphic artists were employed Michael A. Field, John Cumming, John W. Lilly, Jason Page did the music and sound. This actually has a title theme and, uh, and an end theme. And this was for the Amiga and ST 1990. I guess the biggest oddity about this is that because of the ST's struggle to scroll horizontally, he made the entire game not scroll horizontally. <laughs> so even on the Amiga, uh, the decks are entirely displayed as a vertical, which I feel like it loses something through that. Mm. Yeah. The
1: multidirectional scrolling is so essential I feel, yeah. to the uh, original.
0: It is still fundamentally the same game. Uh, the Baboon Baron posted on the forum. Uh, this is uh, somebody who enjoys uh, kind of keeping up with the show. With a little bit of fiddling around, I was able to get a copy of the Amiga ST version of Paradroid 90 working. Don't know which one. Uh, I never had an Amiga personally, but it does have a certain hallowed history of being the bridge between the casual NES owners and the upper class PC players of my youth. The cooler, more interesting kids had one. The ones who knew how to code in BASIC and had seemingly thousands of floppy disks full of games. It also seemed to me as a melting pot of weird and wonderful games, games that could be bought from some bloke who smelt of b and Thatcherism at a car boot sale, games such as Paradroid. In my first sitting I died within thirty seconds, countless times. Without knowing the controls, mission statement, or life count, my little drone got blown up regularly as I gently learned. This was not a top down sci-fi shoot em up. It was cleverer than that. The process of transferring or hacking the other robots escaped me for a spell, but once I'd got used to it, it proved to be a really interesting mechanic. When hacking a robot, the player is greeted with a short minigame, which, to be fair by today's standards, is quite clunky, but very innovative considering the release date. The grandad of all hacking minigames, perhaps. Further to this modern mechanic, I was also very impressed by the ability to log into computers across the spaceship to check the robot population and get the extra info on how they will fight or avoid the player. It really added to the atmosphere and curiosity of what was round the next corner. I still died a lot, though, and my patience for steep learning curves isn't what it once was. So this one will have to remain uncompleted. I felt I spent far too long in the main drone's defenseless form, running away from machine gun toting mechs for me to stick with it to the end. But despite that, I really enjoyed my time with Paradroid 90. It's a joy to see where some of the things we now take for granted, like mini games and data logs, originated from. So it's basically... The same game as i say, uh how do we feel about the the visual interpretation? um it's got a sort of yellow and gray color palette. Any opinions strong or otherwise In ninety <laughs> I,
3: I wouldn't have said it was yellow and gray it's uh, it's it's like this pink metallic thing, and I think it was like a, oh. a extension of of what was originally achieved on the uh on the commodore sixty four Hmm. Uh, sort of evoking high tech metallicness using uh, sort of not simply using grey. Um, hmm. It's like gold ac- gold metallic accents okay, yeah. on a kind of a pink uh, okay, plastic yeah. is the is the star. <laughs> right, yeah. I'm actually quite fond of how that game looks, but it, it does lose a certain amount of cachet through becoming more representational and, and, agree, and less yeah. symbolic. Yeah. yeah.
1: It's very, it's very Amiga. It's very, um, you know, it, it's it's very reflective of uh, like the visual and graphics trends of the time. Very, you know, Bitmap Brothers like almost.
0: Right. I remember even when I played that demo back in just, before, I guess, just before the game came out, uh, and I remember thinking this could look better on the Amiga. Uh, it's quite low frame rate as well. At, mm. uh, I think it's uh, it's probably like twenty five frames a second or something like that. It's quite noticeably uh updating um things like the the actual the laser that you're whatever you know it does the, that's one gameplay wrinkle actually depending on the the type of robot you're now inhabiting it's actually going to dictate which arm your lasers fire from and things like that so there mm. are some some slight wrinkles in there's, that as, there's
3: lots of little uh very finely detailed things just both in the in the aesthetic presentation but also uh in ways that that seem aesthetic but but have gameplay ramifications so for example there's this yeah. weird droid that looks like it's maybe a snack serving robot with a tray yeah. on its head yeah and if you destroy it it the top part of it flies away and explodes separately so it's actually quite dangerous to destroy up close ah. because it mm-hmm. it triggers two It's like a lots of nice little things the 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 main gun on the transfer robot uh, is like a particle effect. Yeah. and when things explode, there's like little gold parts. So this 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 uh, color scheme with the gold accent color is yeah. also the all the explosions have these little gold particles. If you look closely, they have just a little bit of kind of like shimmer to them. Yeah, uh, I think that that I'm not sure if that's all Andrew Braybrook's doing, but whoever was in charge of of those uh, special effects aesthetics really had a. Uh, kind of an original eye for that kind of thing so Mm. in in the details i I really love how the 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 game looks i think that that uh it's not it's not as though any of the robot designs are that attractive but Mm. there's lots of little uh arcadey things that that i think look really nice yeah
0: i like when you go up to uh you go up to the desk uh and go to log on the computer the sort of the you can see the top of the desk kind of lighting up as the monitor powers up as you go near it stuff yeah
3: Yeah, lots of little details that help to kind of really flesh out the idea of the the type of spaceship you're on. You know, it reminds me more of uh, Red Dwarf than anything else.
0: Yeah, uh, right, I yeah. suppose
3: the timing is not exactly right for that, but uh, that's definitely how it how it comes across.
0: Uh, I think Red Dwarf started in the late '80s, didn't it? No, oh, that it's might probably... be perfect then. Maybe that was yeah. that,
3: maybe that was an inspiration.
0: Yeah. Um. Yes. The doors. The doors are slightly easier to get through in this one compared mm-hmm. to the C64 one as well. Which is yeah. Welcome. <laughs> Who was it who was booing the graphics? Was that you? Yeah,
2: well, I'll I'll revise and extend. Um <laughs> I Ooh. I did like no, I you know, I thought that the those designs, I thought they were actually nice, but more for like an adventure game as opposed to this kind of action high stakes, roguelikey sort of thing. And it, it is just the loss of clarity, right? Mm. That I did feel like a lot of the aesthetic decisions were made more for yeah, following you know, what looks cool on an Amiga rather than that, like, I want to see all of the vectors and know exactly what situation I'm in at all times. Right. And the transfer game, especially, it just looks like bad Giger. It just looks like, and <laughs> in a way that actually gets in the way of me being able to play the transfer game. Um, There's one
3: thing I do like about the yeah. presentation of the transfer game on the Amiga is that it looks a lot more like an Abacus, which is, kind of a nice little visual metaphor i think
0: for what you're doing yeah but it is harder to read actually i yes, would agree yes definitely yeah, yeah definitely yeah. hmm curious and i remember uh, the reviews at the time were generally positive but certainly nowhere near as stellar as the c64 version had been you know greeted with such plaudits just uh, just 5 years before mm. um and it wasn't yeah it wasn't the case that it was necessarily a a bad port as it were it just perhaps um I don't know. I mean, it 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 was it was weird watching Braybrook's career actually because I don't think obviously Eurydium got a lot of attention and was was incredibly popular, but I don't think he ever, uh, other than the conversion of Rainbow Islands, ever made anything that was reviewed quite as spectacularly ever again as Paradroid.
3: He did. Um, he did get reasonably good reviews for Eurydium 2, and he did have another developer diary again for for the Iridium sequel. Yes, is an yeah, Amiga game difficult. as well. That's true, um, and then I think Fire and Ice, uh, which is really yeah, I think his 16-bit well, like, swan song, was yeah, yeah received a certain amount of attention, and of course ports to a lot of uh, uh, platforms that were popular outside of the yeah. UK. Yes, uh, yes,
0: I, I I don't mean to um, to imply it because yeah, he he made lots of games that were were well regarded and um, well received, and he has a lot of respect. But perhaps um, you know, as with as with many artists. You know, yeah. Perhaps he hit upon this massive peak very early on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I will adore him forever for his work on on making the Amiga version of Rainbow Islands almost arcade perfect. Yeah. So,
3: I, I uh, wanna I would say that the the other thing that that really stands out about the Amiga version of of Paradroid mm-hmm. is is uh, it has this this little ex, extended element for people who really love the game. Uh, which is the the secret key? Do you, are you aware of this? It's, uh, no. This so is speaking about that that um, that the using gold everywhere, metallic gold as the accent color, yeah. Uh, on every dreadnought in Paradroid ninety, hidden somewhere at random, is a tiny little sort of like six pixel uh, gold key. No way. And if you pick it up, it doesn't tell you that anything in particular has happened. Uh, But if you get all of the gold keys, there's like a special ship. Like you get to go to the pirate. Like there's this mechanic in Paradroid 90. uh, If you take too long to kill all of the droids, human raiders, like pirates start coming into the ship Mm. as the kind of penalty for that. You can't transfer into them because they're sentient beings rather than robots. Um, So it's just like a strict penalty. Mm. But if you get all the keys, you're able to go to their ship uh, as, wow. as like so it's really kind of deeply hidden thing and i will say uh there's a reference to this mechanic in uh ape out i managed to sneak uh oh, a reference uh-huh. to that into the to the to the game <laughs> again with very small well hidden yellow objects that that are randomly placed in the levels so uh y- you know people should keep an eye out for that
1: that's amazing. In I, regard to the the, the the Golden Keys in, um, not Ape Out, but Peridot 90, yeah. I believe you're 100% Bennett, but it sounds like some Pleasure Dome uh, <laughs> secret Smash that. TV room. Uh, I was thinking Smash <laughs> kind TV. Kind of fabled uh, thing <laughs> that, that never existed.
0: The Pleasure Dome was in the Super Nintendo version. That's all you need to know. <laughs> yeah. Uh Paradroid 2000 arrived in 1993 which was the same game effectively. I don't know if there were any meaningful differences, but it was uh, they they just added 10 years onto the onto the title <laughs> for some reason. It was converted by Andrew Catling. Uh the Ami- the Archimedes didn't uh, ever set the world on fire, but it was uh, it was quite a capable BBC uh successor. Uh we had one at our Sixth Form College. Um, never got to use it for anything interesting, sadly.
3: It has uh, David Brabant's best game on it. Uh, best claim to fame for the Archimedes. It, it has uh, the Zark. original version of Zarch, yeah.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, I had the Amiga version, but apparently it wasn't the same. No. <laughs> That's a pig to control, talking about games <laughs> that are hard to go back to. Wow. Uh Anyway, we'll save that for We'll do that for a future show. um, Another game that we probably won't complete. (laughs) Uh, Simon Sloth from the forum says, having never played Paradroid when it was released, I can only imagine how ambitious and impressive it was on original hardware. I don't have that reference point, though. But if I were to judge the game on whether it's playable in 2019, the answer is definitely yes. The individual gameplay elements are a little ropey, but somehow add up to a game that is more than the sum of its parts. I played it on the delightful C64 Mini, which was initially tricky as the bundled joystick isn't the best. However, after a bit of internet research and with the help of Retro Asylum, I chose a new controller, which is excellent. It also made the game significantly easier. The movement is quite rigid and there's often a delay on any kind of shooting you attempt, which adds a bit of tension and isn't always welcome. Clearing out each level appealed to my slightly obsessive nature and was immensely satisfying seeing the lighting on each floor switch off. The transfer puzzle was challenging, but once I established that attempting to take over a high-level security droid with my entry-level starting drone was foolhardy, things improved. My general tactic was to wait until the enemy had placed their pieces and then quickly placed mine seizing control in the dying seconds. It didn't always work, but was exhilarating every time. After a good few attempts, I cleared one ship thinking I'd finished the game. I was wrong. I think I'm done with Paradroid, but I enjoyed my time with it it was just about enough to justify my c64 mini alone nice
1: yeah it was on there as well the c64 mini right
0: yeah i mean you couldn't release a, a any kind of c64 retro system worth its chips without uh, without parodroid on there in at least mm. in at least one flavor if not all three um another person there who uh basically called it <laughs> game over and and i've won at the end of the first ship of eight uh which i can quite understand i'd be quite happy just to do the one we have just two three word reviews which isn't surprising for such a, a vintage game we know our audience uh is not generally uh quite as ancient as uh as i am certainly but uh uh, and whether people have memories enough to review it. But the Bo- Boon Baron provided a three word review, having played it for the show. Transmission terminated again. But uh, if you'll forgive me, Baboon Baron, more excitingly, I reached out to the author himself earlier today on Twitter. Didn't know how much of a regular tweeter he was. But just before we started recording, Andrew Braybrook himself at Euridium Author came back with heavy metal mayhem. Thank you so much Andrew. Yeah, he reviewed his own game. He did. We like it. We love it when we get a creator uh to review their own game. Um and yeah, that's my first ever interaction after knowing who Andrew Braybrook was for the last uh 35 years of my life. I've now spoken to him on Twitter and that's another one on, off the uh, off the <laughs> metaphorical bucket list. So, there we go. Uh, so, summarizing Um, I suppose now this is a game that can't be uh, I mean you could you could seek out a Commodore 64 and a cassette or a disc of the original hardware but there's no current legal way to play this I don't even know if it's legally abandoned where Paradroid I think Paradroid 90 is but I think maybe the license on the original is still held by somebody I don't know I don't care would we recommend people play it and how which version etc and some of our general emotions about the game let's start with
1: Yeah, um, the last uh, week marked uh, the first period in uh, my life that I actually spent some serious time with Paradroid, and I'm thinking I never did so before, even though I figured out it was much more interesting than than my very initial impressions uh, ever gave it credit for, is because it almost... You know, I need a, usually a little bit more of a visual drive to to persist with the game. Mm-hmm. And contrary to what we all have been saying before, I wasn't automatically visually attracted to Paradroid. I think it was almost too minimalist for me. But, you know, forcing myself to sit down with this game and playing it more and getting into its intricacies... I actually started really appreciating the way it looked. Um, it is still very minimalist, but it almost had some sort of uh, comic book appeal to me. The, the, the color usage, the, the best relief, the frame around the screen, the title and the top. And I also uh, became very charmed with the, the actual Game Over screen, which is some sort of yeah, very, very cool uh, screen static. Yeah. Uh, approximation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that in turn helped me to get more and more into Paradroid and figure out its intricacies. Like Leon, uh, I haven't been able to clear the first ship yet, uh, but I feel like I'm not done with this game. And, you know, I think if I would have played this game back in the 1980s, my young mind wouldn't have been ready for it. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's, it's. I think you know playing playing this game. Uh, Simon has actually done it at least cleared one ship. But playing this game for a podcast in uh, in a, in, a, in a single week isn't the ideal way to go about this. No. I imagine if I would have been uh, more into it uh, and would have known about it as a as a as a youngster, uh, it would have been one of those games where you just. Fire it up every once in a while and chip away at it, and keep chipping away at it. Then play something else. Then come back to it. Then keep chipping away at it before pieces of the puzzle start falling together in your mind and you start understanding it more and more and you start making breakthroughs. I think it's definitely that that kind of game, and yeah, I uh, I want to keep on playing this one, and uh, it's 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 such a fascinating little game to
0: to return to after all these years. Thanks, Michael. So it's been a real pleasure for me to finally catch up with Paradroid a mere 34 years after it came out and uh, thinking about playing it. I I'm not sure why I haven't sorted myself out playing it on emulation. But, you know, other things happen. Life gets in the way, video games and whatever. Um, but, yeah, I'm very, very happy to say that this game's still got it uh, all these years on. I mean, I regularly play games from this era, but more often than not, it's arcade games. Uh, so it's very nice to go back to a computer game. Um, that really if you take on board the whole set including the two official revisions c games used to get remasters even back then um, and updates uh, and the unofficial redux and the Paradroid 90 version it's a game that I would say hasn't been kind of iterated upon we we talked about games that it may have influenced but I really I'm playing this and thinking that you could absolutely not one out the park. Now, I think there'd be a danger that you wouldn't get the balance as impeccable as Braybrook did the, the word that keeps coming to mind with, with this, and I don't use it too often when we do summaries for games on Cater Rince but it is, a, it feels like a genius game to me. Like it, it, it is, it feels like a work of genius, but I'm not sure if it is, or if it was just a, a lovely serendipitous happenstance where things all came together and, and, um, you know, like waking up one day with the inspiration to, to add the transfer game in the game would be so much lesser without that, without that aspect. Mm. I think it would still be fun enough, but it, I don't think it would have lasted the test of time in the way it has. I found this, um, I haven't played it nearly as much as I should have done or need to, or want to, but, uh, I've played it many hours, many, many goes, many deaths, many frustrations. Um, and I'm ready to play it more. I'm ready to pick it up again. And, um, It will stay sitting there, you know, doesn't take up much room on a modern PC, uh, Commodore 64 emulator and uh, and a few Paradroid ROMs. Uh, And I'll keep playing it and I'll hope that uh, Mr. Braybrook or somebody takes up the mantle and comes up with a a true modern successor with everything that should uh, incorporate. But right now, yeah, if you can play it, check it out. It's uh, it's remarkable, I would say. Jesse. Yeah,
2: no, I was also really happy to finally sort of have that impetus to, to really sit down and and get over that initial learning curve and hump, which it does have. You do have to kind of learn the ship. Uh, you have to, you know, figure out the transfer game and just sort of like your you can feel your neural pathways shifting as you, you know, play that over mm-hmm. and over. And it again, I keep coming back to this kind of like my favorite intersection of video games and sort of tabletop games and that this... It sort of annoys me that Trip Hawkins at Electronic Arts didn't see this and, you know, bring it over here and it wasn't brought out on a more prestige label and maybe polished up a little, maybe have the later ships actually have different arrangements of robots and stuff like that. There is something about Mm -hmm. the game that does feel it's British in kind of a Nick Lowe way where it's like, yeah, you bash four (laughs) chords against each other and it'll work itself out and you're a genius and it does. Um, But right, the fact that the game kind of creates its puzzles by just bouncing really interesting rules off each other and kind of letting the chips fall where they may. Uh, And in that way that, you know, there is some weird things about the dramatic arc again, where, you know, the end of the game is like a mop up under a severe time pressure sometimes. But it does create all of these really interesting, unique situations, moments of drama You know, I I tried to take this over, and I died, and uh, now I'm the 001, and I can't run away, so I'm going to have to try to take over a 6, which I probably can't do, but oh, I grabbed it. And yeah, genuinely, you know, 2019, 1985 doesn't make a difference. Good game design is good game design. Um, Mm. And the game is just so clear, it doesn't get in its way. Like, one thing we didn't mention, but just, it took me a half hour, an hour of playing it to realize this, but once I did I was like, oh my gosh. you can tell the strength, you know, the life force of your robot by simply how fast its little top and bottom is spinning, right? That's What? Oh, you didn't notice that. <laughs> yes, that'll help.
0: Because <laughs> in, the, in the Amiga one, in 90, they put an energy bar in mm. uh, because one of the complaints about the C64 game is you can't tell how damaged you are, but apparently you can.
2: Yes. Yeah, no, it's perfect. Uh, it's just such an elegant... There's so many elegant solutions here. Um and yeah, I just came away from it envious uh that I can't teach it in American Computer Games of the 80s because I <laughs> do feel like it is um one of my favorite games that came out of our Game Center uh you know thesis and incubator and all that is this game Sumer on the Switch, which is very different from Mule, but was pretty directly inspired by us teaching about Mule in our Games 101 class and you know mm-hmm. advising students to, to check it out. And I feel mm-hmm. like Paradroid is one of the few games on that level of like, you know, um, yeah, if any of our students are listening to this or who are incoming, uh, yeah, yeah, Paradroid, play Paradroid, make your thesis uh, do in Paradroid 2019 or something that, you know, changes it, but captures like this this really elegant sense of how to bounce rules off each other to create these sorts of situations. Yeah, can't recommend it more highly also you know i think playing the redux version playing quasitron if you are looking at it in terms of game design playing 90 Mm. um you'll learn a lot and i definitely feel like i went through that journey um of going what the hell am i doing i don't understand any of this to now feeling like i've got this web in my head of relationships and yeah it's immensely
0: satisfying beautiful thank you jesse and to conclude with our guest bennett
3: yeah i mean to riff off of what what Jess is saying i think one one of the nicest things about paradroid is it's uh, it's a rare sui generis game in a in a medium uh video games which is so often uh quick to explore every corner of a genre and you know really to 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 give you a lot of different tastes of the same the same type of flavor uh I always like to to go for those things that that were on evolutionary branches that kind of died away uh and Paradroid is is really I'm not sure if it's a work of genius, but it's clearly a a work of insp- of great inspiration right you know right. i think uh for somebody who was clearly trying to make was you know Braybrook was involved in the process of trying to make uh like like most people at the time uh trying to make computer adaptations of experiences that you could have in an arcade um for him to turn around and and make something that was so uh so different than other arcade games at the time is it's just really it's really interesting it's as, as a kind of a work of art it's sort of uh clearly clearly just sort of welled up out of out of uh inspired design thinking and a lot of different sort of design strands being woven together very well and not necessarily in an intellectualized way just by a, a very talented designer solving uh technical problems and design problems as they came up and and the resulting kind of um uh, uh weave is is very uh is is very different than its its contemporaries and I, I think that makes it interesting enough to study uh if you want to enjoy playing it now i'm actually going to break with the consensus of the group and say the thing to do is to get the amiga version mm-hmm. uh and to make sure that you set your emulator and, and the, the monitor on your computer set it to fifty or hundred hertz yes. so that you're not dropping frames all the time. Yeah, uh, cuz it actually runs very smooth if 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 you set the if you set it to to 50 uh or 100 hertz on, yes. on the monitor. Um and I I think in in that context you can really enjoy some of the aesthetics. Mainly uh I still think the 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 game feel and the sound design, but also uh if it's to your taste, the that that very Amiga style uh visual design as well. Mm-hmm. Um that's how I play it and you know, I I think to the point of the difficulty when I, I, I have been chipping at this game for many years, I pick it up, I play it for a couple of hours, and then I put it down for another year. And and uh, I I don't... When, when I play Space Invaders, I don't worry about whether I'm finishing the game. I'm just trying to get mm-hmm. a better score. And I, I play yeah. Paradroid for score. And yeah. I think that's where it's at its most enjoyable, is to treat it as an arcade challenge. You're going to start out pretty yeah. bad. And then as you chip away at it over the years, you get you get better at it. And I was surprised to learn... Uh, Playing the Commodore 64 version uh, in advance of of this discussion uh, that actually I find it pretty easy now. This game that I found so impossible to play (laughs) is now almost a little too easy. Uh, The Amiga version Mm -hmm. is faster, especially the transfer game is a lot harder. So uh, I think it's got a little more depth in it that way as well.
1: so funny you say that because i was before the the show i was uh, saying the same thing Mm. like i'm playing it more almost like a game of robotron yeah you you just keep chipping away at it like robotron with brains yeah yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) rather than a game to be completed yeah yeah
2: Yeah, i mean and the rule set encourages that i don't even think we mentioned the whole alert system where if you shoot enough Mm. robots quickly enough you start getting bonus points and the alert level goes up um Mm. And between that and the, you know, the healing, um,
0: costing you mm, yeah. points, trade,
1: trading, trading, uh, trading score yeah. for healing, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah no, there, there's definitely, as always, even even w- with seemingly on the surface the, you know, the, the, the most rudimentary games, um, there's always more to talk about than we than we think and uh, and get around to. But uh, yes, hopefully some people will be inspired to. Dig it out and uh, try it for themselves. Whether mm. it be yeah, Padroid ninety ninety as uh, as Bennett recommends, or or the original. Yeah, I would say check out either and or both. So it remains for me, Leon, to thank Jesse McKeil and Bennett. Thank you so much for mm. joining us uh, and offering so much uh, passion and insight. Is there anything? I mean, you know, buy a power if you haven't already. Uh, but is yeah. there anything else you want to plug?
3: Uh, I just say, if you do buy Ape out, keep an eye out for that uh, Red yeah. reference in there if you can spot it.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, okay. Well, yes, look out for Bennett generally on the internet. Uh, and uh, yeah, we'll hopefully we'll stay friends and uh, we'll get you back on to maybe cover some of the games that you've even <laughs> had a hand in yourself in future.
3: Uh, that would be great.
0: Uh, As well as uh, I'd like to thank our correspondents and editor Jay and to you for listening. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, as I always say, please do remember to subscribe, rate, review, wherever you get your audio media from. Best of all, though, support us, help us out, do with Patreon.com slash Cana Rinse. Even a dollar a month unlocks all of our goodies at the moment at the time of recording uh, and really helps us uh, continue to put the amount of time and effort we do into our podcasts. And you get early stuff and an exclusive monthly show next time in issue 373 ha 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 ha, final fantasy 10.